This is Speaking of Anthropology here on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. Uh, new time, new show, new day. Welcome to Friday, 11 a.m. Uh, here at KSUA in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, wow, a new show, a new day, Dylan. Yeah, Kevin. I mean, a new show uh, and that this episode is new. Old show and that we've been doing this uh, for over a year and a half now, which I'm still proud of in terms of length. But yeah, you know, it's uh, nice to be back on the original time slot of, uh, you know, Friday from 11 to noon. We haven't done that since uh, spring, the uh, shortened spring of 2020. So yeah, it's nice. And uh, to celebrate this momentous occasion, this uh, return, this arrival to a new time slot, uh, we've decided to do uh, two of our favorite things, uh, one of which is a film review, and the other of which is to have a dear friend of the show, Sherry, on. So welcome back to the show, Sherry. I love uh, being able to participate in this, and this is a fascinating film, so I'm extra excited. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, of course. And so uh, just to uh, briefly introduce the film before I uh, kick it off to Kevin, we will be talking about uh, Arrival, uh, the 2016 science fiction film based on uh, the 1998 short story Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. The film itself was directed by uh, Dennis Villeneuve, who has gone on to have a fairly prolific now science fiction career, having done the sequel to Blade Runner and currently working on uh, the Dune adaptation. So yeah, that is uh, that is our film topic for today. If we can manage to cram it into our hour-long episode, so uh, yeah, Kevin, uh, anything that you want to bring up for our listeners to start off this particular uh, discussion? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, preface maybe I think to to why we chose this film. Um, I think you know, kudos and thank you to Sherry actually for bringing up this wonderful film in conversation with us in the past um, and allowing us actually to revisit a really unique film, I think. Uh, maybe I'll give my personal background. When I watched it, I did not understand what was happening. I think this was back in 2016 when I was still a high school student and really, really confused as to why was it so somber? Why was it so sad? What are they doing Climbing into a random half bulb uh, and, uh, you know, talking to these like non-existent identity things in the in the wall. Right. And uh, it seemed like a horror film to me as a as a younger kid um, and not thinking into what really meant more. Of course, I'm not saying that I wasn't thinking, but, uh, you know, I think this is part of the discussion today. But Arrival, an alien film, I think, uh, to some uh, a linguistic a communicatory film to others. Uh, and I think that's something up to discussion today. So, uh, but I know Sherry, Sherry, you've probably uh, come with notes today and, and probably have many, many thoughts. So um, maybe if you wouldn't mind maybe sharing a little bit, starting off why this film uh, that you wanted to share with us, uh, even though we've all watched it and then maybe revisit, why did we want to revisit it? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to share because um, I was... Uh, completely ignited with the uh, uh, prompting from uh, Dr. Shopes and in uh, taking her linguistic class. I think this is a whole uh, other show because of this new perspective um, that I've been able to take from everything that she has taught 
in her classroom. And I'm so appreciative of, it was this film and another that was sort of um, offered. And uh, I watched them both, but, um, and both of them very powerful and dynamic, but this one in particular because of its simplicity and because it was um, also kind of reminded me a lot of the dig and uh, this, the setting and this, you know, Moorish kind of uh, dismal background and what it, what it represented and um, the added layer of um, all of the different uh, anthropologists um, that have contributed to um, linguistic research and theories. And I think that um, by focusing on, you know, heavily focusing on the introducing one um, theory, um, there was just, you know, I, I got excited because I saw so many other theories presented that we've learned in other courses, like Dr. Plate um, and Levi Strauss, especially things that have been strong takeaways. So I thought it was just kind of encompassing this overall, um, the essence of all that we have learned. What is it, you know, how does it change our perspective? So yeah, that's a little bit of uh, why I thought this was a, a good pick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once I heard uh, from Kevin that it was something that you're interested in seeing, I was definitely pushing hard for it, too, because I remember, I guess, um, uh, kind of opposite to Kevin, I also saw it in theaters back in 2016 when it came out, and but it, it struck me quite powerfully then, and it, it stayed with me, and so uh, I saw, yeah, it was, it was, it was a wonderful opportunity that I couldn't that I didn't want to pass up either once we had this kind of collective interest in talking about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, already we've kind of <laughs> laid out how you can see so many different things in it, right? If you're maybe um, either not necessarily into science fiction or just coming at it from a different perspective, maybe you, you're left slightly baffled by, you know, kind of wondering what's going on with it. Um, maybe seeing it as a horror movie, you know, or as, Otherwise, you might be able to see different things in it, as, as Sherry said, right, you can these um, sort of the major communicative elements, right, and the social sciences, as well as the natural sciences that are going into um, the major story of the film, or, uh, you know, I think <laughs> there's also the, uh, the personal uh, dramatic story, the arc in the, the, um, tragedy as well as the twisting uh the twists that lead into it right where um you might not fully understand what is being shown to you until the end and so it it sort of deviates from conventional narrative structures and in, in a way showing you um middle sections and end sections of the story as fragments before you get into it and i remember that that was one of the things um that really uh the really stuck with me as like a as a narrative convention um and how the story was told uh but yeah i guess since we are uh an anthropological show um i'm curious as to so uh as we've set up for the listeners right you know the major plot of the story is trying to talk to these aliens that have spontaneously arrived on earth nobody knows why they're here or what they're doing and they just kind of sit in these um, almost monolithic looking smooth stone there the one that um that they have in montana that the that um is the major 
plot point. I think it kind of looks like a red blood cell in a way, how it's got that concave uh, structure. But uh, yes, yeah, so they're trying to talk to him. So I'm curious as to what you guys thought about that sort of uh, those efforts, right? In that sort of first contact struggle to to uh, maybe teach and learn language at the same time to try and get at the root of this mystery. I'm going to jump right in here and um, add to that because um, it was when you first, the initial moment where you hear the aliens um, in the recording where they're in Dr. Banks' office and they're asking her to translate these sounds. And um, it's sort of like this, you know, underwater, you know, that was the first thing I thought immediately was, was like, you know, the, the whales. And of course I did um, look into the interview with the uh, director and um, Denis, I don't want to butcher his last name, so I'm going to stick to his first name. Denis um, mentioned that they were going for this kind of uh, very larger than, than life, um, but still mysterious and very, very captivating, but also warm you know, presence of these uh, incredible creatures. And um, so when he mentioned that, that uh, some of the inspiration came from like elephants and whales, and when he said whales, I'm like, they're like these, you know, all these underwater things started to, to rise up. And I thought they looked like a shell, like a very smooth, or like a, a very polished river rock, you know, so these water elements. And of course, then my brain starts going into um, the, uh, understanding how we have sent more people into outer space than we have in the very depths of our own oceans and how much we, you know, uh, knowledge-wise, our, our intelligence, our awareness of what is out there beyond what we can see and comprehend is um, just equal in these uh, layers of, so we have the underwater, we have this, you know, supernatural essence, and then we have like this outer space. So of course the, the Strauss, you know, um, the uh, scores of a music sheet and how we have to, we need all the different parts of the, all the different musicians that interpret their parts to come together. And I thought, well, what, why wasn't this like the headline of the, you know, this is, this is the story and, and how what Levi Strauss was saying with this is important that we need to put all of our pieces together and have like this um, clearer understanding. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll jump in here. I, uh, <laughs> I think a lot about, and I, I'm still dwelling, I think on the thoughts of the, the whale sounds, right? The clicking noise, um, you know, and then at least, uh, you know, the design of the film itself and the cinematography, that's something we can discuss later on. But maybe back to that red blood cell looking spaceship uh, movement thing. Um, I, I actually did a little background research and I, I found out that um, the filmmakers were kind of inspired by an artist actually named James Terrell. Um, and he creates essentially, so I, I don't know if you guys can remember uh, the scene where the, both scientists and, you know, the military folks uh, descend in or ascend into I, I, you can't descend or ascend because there's no gravity the gravity changes right in the in the the space but they walk into it and there's just this big white panel right um, almost as if it's like a movie theater um, and what James Terrell and I, there's actually you know I'm one of these movie guys who looks at things and sees patterns but you know this the, the, the structure of the, the the rectangular box is like a movie theater 
And it kind of is a statement, I guess. Um, and as James Terrell does with his artwork, is essentially that um, he takes uh, art, art, you know, a blank wall um, and then creates a fixture for light to reflect upon it. Uh, so he, if you look online, James Terrell's artwork, um, there's a variety of it. And, you know, I think you'll see it consistently throughout, whether it be, uh, you know, when they walk into it, uh, the spaceship design, right, the simplicity of the light bouncing from behind you know, on this dark figure uh, and, and everything else, you know, when they leave uh, in this, this cyclical mo- movement. Um, of course, then there's the, the language that they, you know, talk about. Uh, but to me, I, at least just to bring up that James Farrell artwork, and it's kind of interesting to think about. And I wonder why, um, you know, they wanted to create this blank wall. And why is it that the aliens wanted to create a wall between us? Uh, is it maybe a reflection of, you know, the ways in which we interact with them? Um, you know, if you think about it, uh, also, there's a lot going on behind it. I'll just monologue a little bit longer. But, you know, likewise, there's the military, you know, around the world, collaboration with different scientists, um, international organizations working together, but also not working together. Um, and, you know, of course, I think it's 2016, so we can say spoilers at this point. But, you know, uh, you know, the time travel-esque, you know, values, uh, you know, of, of the Chinese, uh, I think, you know, military officer that they're talking about who makes the decision to attack and uh, the, the spaceship and the Americans are thinking about it and everyone's getting anxious. Um, so I, I thought it was such a, you know, I think what made the movie interesting and it was, it was kind of realistic in some senses, um, even though it's sci-fi, uh, but it could potentially happen tomorrow, you know, um, the arrival of a, of a half blood cell or the, as they would call it, I think a heptapod spaceship uh, lands in the middle of Fairbanks, um, and uh, I guess UAF, the Geophysical Institute, will have a field day. Maybe the anthropologists will start looking at the human beings being sucked up into the spaceship. I don't know um, <laughs> to communicate, but uh, it, it's kind of interesting that design and the aesthetics of it was kind of somber, relaxing, but also really realistic. I think uh, it, it seems like it could happen any day. Uh, uh, at least that's how I felt watching the film, but. I'm not sure how you guys felt, actually. Yeah, that that idea of, like, this is... Not only could it happen any day, but, you know... I would like to think that there... To go off maybe in a small tangent, I would like to think that we are not alone in the universe, right? So it might not just be a, that it could happen any day, but eventually, at some point, there will be a day, right, where we, uh, you know, make first contact, right? And the, it it definitely could follow this sort of route. Um, and to to your point, right? Of uh, one of the things that I remember um, most strongly, like visually from the movie, is that first scene where they properly show you the spaceship, and you've got the um, clouds are rolling out over the mountains and through this valley that the thing is parked in, and so it's um, initially somewhat obfuscated, right? With the mist and the clouds um as as they're approaching it and stuff and so again right that sort of the interplay of um things that are slowly unveiled visually um and obfuscation with with uh like clouds and smoke to an extent sort of like how the heptapods themselves are behind a glass wall and yeah that that interplay of of uh light and reflectivity are all very important to the visual storytelling uh, of this 
movie and then yeah you have obviously the uh the language element right of the uh the writing and the the circular writing that doesn't necessarily or it doesn't really at all have a beginning or an end in even how it's written right and it's just sort of um manipulated into being and their attempts to understand it especially because uh as the movie quickly lays out the written language and the spoken language don't correlate for the heptapods right and so even at the end of the movie as far as the viewer is aware um we still can't understand the whale sounds that they make right all those noises that they um make uh are still unknown to us but that's not they're not what even the heptapods were trying to trying to do in the first place right you know the the written language is is what's important um to communicating with them and so that sort of decipherment right becomes uh you know the major major plot point uh but yeah it's <laughs> i find that a really interesting decision to um obviously from like a creative standpoint right of of putting this emphasis on written language and i think it works well for a movie right where they're showing you what the what these characters look like uh but i'm curious i would imagine that that decision probably would have been made in the novella although i'm not sure because i haven't read it so i'm i'm very curious about that as a decision right of having this emphasis be on um the written language and the the sort of visual metaphors even um necessarily when in a book it would be presented in a in a slightly different way uh so i was curious if you guys had any, any thoughts on that either of that kind of decision to emphasize the translation and um decipherment of and the importance of the written language over what the the whale song of the heptapods i i absolutely well my gosh my brain is like exploding right now with all these different things that you guys have sort of sparked and i'll go back to um how um the presence the arrival of these you know the the pods and um these the, the symbolism of there's 12 of them scattered out, which in the original book, I think there was 112 and nine of them, which were um, um, contacted, you know, but in, in the film, there were 12. And uh, there was a part in the film where they said, well, you know, we're trying to kind of um, uh, decipher what is the what is the reason why they picked the locations why did they pick the specific locations could it be this could it be that could it be because of the vikings which that also was uh kind of you know similar to the dig you know this viking ships well these are places where viking ships have, but it's also where you know this pop performer sheena easton had some major hits so there's really no rhyme or reason that we are able to understand but also going back to um, the questions about like how do we how do we behave when we encounter these kinds of things and what's going to happen and um, also do we really factually know that these things are from the future or they're just from another presence in our same you know parallel and then um, so when I thought about uh, these threats and how our responses were I thought oh my gosh I've seen these scenes you know and they talk about the different cities how people are reacting some people are panicking some people are just in shock 
you know, other people are in awe of, of some kind of, you know, fascination. The, the mention of the Pentecostal church, you know, that had uh, burned their, their church down. And so I started thinking about the, the 12, what was the reason that they changed the number uh, to 12? And I thought, well, there's the, the um, biblical references to 12 and uh, the 12 gates and the 12 portals, you know, and these different. Um, and then of course, there's also 12 in a dozen. I could not, I mean, there, there might not be absolutely any reason at all why there were 12, you know, but um, I thought it also really just kind of points at how anthropologists um, have these questions that we have to bring up. Is what I'm seeing really what I'm seeing, you know, and is what I'm understanding. Um, but with the, the reactions, people's public reactions, and I'm thinking, yeah, we just have COVID. We don't understand, you know, how we're supposed to, like, we've had to, somewhat come together and try to figure out as a planet, you know, like how are we gonna handle this? And we haven't really been aligned in just this. How would we handle something from what we perceive to be outer space? Um, and our understanding of the intentions, you know, as we've learned in the film that they have this very benevolent, you know, uh, we were trying to help humanity, we're trying to unite humanity, we're trying to get people, you know, because in the future, we're going to need your help. And I'm thinking, is, are we the food supply that they're trying to salvage, you know, that they don't want us to extinguish ourselves because they need us, you know, as, as, um, some form of, of, you know, elementary, what are they going to do with this? What are their true intentions? Because ultimately it does kind of, you know, are they being altruistic or are they being selfish? So there we go with the, you know, um, um, the evolutionary, you know, anthropologist theories that, you know, or the biologists who are thinking, well, this is all part of, you know, the survival of the fittest. And um, are they really just grooming us to believe that, you know, we need to survive our survival is, is just the ultimate goal, you know, which is also going back to like this, you know, egocentric perspective of um, just things that we learn a lot about in research. I think the film was really, um, did a very, very good job of presenting what anthropologists, especially, you know, for this case, linguistic anthropologists, that there's still these occupational hazards, you know, the whole preparation scene and the risk assessment and um, contamination and, and all these different things that can happen once you go into this alien pod, which I think is similar when someone goes to another, you know, a, a foreign place where we're not acclimated to or um, a lot of the, the fear and wonder at the same time these mixed emotions and the film really pushes us to read a lot into these very um subtle facial expressions to draw meaning of the scene and i think it was very very successfully done with a limited um they didn't overplay like these explosions and the violence and the you know heavy show force you know but they make references. So I counted the times that the word weapon kept coming up and it was almost right in the forefront of the scene where um, Ian has mentioned, uh, Ian's the other researcher on this uh, project. And he mentions the quote that uh, Dr. Banks had written in her book that, you know, the preface where um, the quote reads, language is the foundation of civilization 
that glue that holds the people together. It is the first weapon drawn in conflict. And so, of course, we go into the film and how we interpret the word weapon, whether it's the weapon is use of a tool. And of course, now we go back to Strauss's gift. Their aliens are presenting this as a gift to us. And it's up to us to decide how we're using what other countries have decided. Um, I apologize for the noise. I'm going to go back a minute. So if you guys want to splice it, um, how the other countries have used st strategy, um, like with the Mahjong and um, in order to try to figure this out mathematically or, you know, and then the introduction of the Fibonacci, you know, that, that way of analyzing everything, um, Fibonacci sequencing this order is not found in language. That was fascinating to me. It's in the cosmos, it's in mother nature, it's in everything, you know, that is um, engaging to the human, you know, how, how we perceive artwork. I think I'm coming from that angle. Artwork and music can all be brought into fitting in this template except language. Um, so yeah, that's a whole other rabbit hole that I'm definitely going to dive into. Well, and even to your point about the discussion of weapon, right, at the one of the, um, even before they mentioned the word weapon is, uh, you know, when it's, she's essentially um, competing for the job in a way of, to be the linguist, you know, she tells them to ask the next guy that they're going to go talk to about the Sanskrit word for war, because she disputes with him. Um, we, uh, that particular professor argues that apparently that the Sanskrit word for war means an argument, whereas she translates it as a desire for more cattle, right? So even, you know, all the way at the beginning of the film, before we even mention the word weapon, right, we also have, um, you know, discussions of, of war and armed conflict, but more importantly, how you translate war and armed conflict, right? Because, um, you know, if you if you take follow the framing that she presents of Sanskrit word for war being, um, you know, desire for more cattle, it's like, okay, so then armed conflict is essentially just, uh, you know, large scale cattle raiding and right. And so that sort of changes how you understand it, right? Whereas, I think, folks today would probably not think of cows when they think of war right and so you have um the already they're setting up the idea of how translations um reflect uh specific cultural understandings of these occurrences that we might regard as like fundamentally universal right like how could you alter the understanding of war war is war it's like well Yes, but no, right? Uh, you know, if you're in a society that um, prizes, uh, you know, cattle and uh, the accumulation of large herds, whether or not, you know, that is true specifically for the um, uh, early Indo-Aryan peoples, but in general, there have been societies in the, on the planet that regard large cattle herds as a measure of success, right? So then you're idea of armed conflict might result revolve around the acquisition of that whereas we would maybe understand armed conflict now or in our present society as largely driven by um uh occupation of specific territories or ideology or uh you know resources independent of cattle maybe 
locked to a particular location. So yeah, you know, they, they set up quite, <laughs> quite early on, right, this framing, this importance of understanding that just because you can f- translate it as this word doesn't mean that the cultural connotations of that word are the same for both, right? And that gets to the major point of uh, them using the word weapon repeatedly, right? The heptapods, the aliens, them using the word weapon, offer weapon, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, the argument, thanks, right, from Amy Adams' character is that uh, they might not distinguish between weapons and tools, right? They might all just be tools and so we might we might have taught them a word for weapon but they don't really see necessarily a difference or understand it in the way we do even though one would suppose well weapon is weapon is weapon right for everybody well not necessarily the case and uh i mean it's interesting though too because as you pointed out even the conclusion of the film doesn't necessarily settle the question of what their actual intentions were right because we get that they gave us this language, right? That was their end goal was to give us the language and to get everybody to work together. But as you said, we don't know what the nature of the help they need is because all they say is we're going to need your help in 3000 years. Here's our language peace, right? So, (laughs) so, you know, what, what, what help are they going to need? Right. Um, That is, that is left an unanswered question. I would hope that it's not, um, something evil and vile and whatever lurks in the mind of a Xenos. But, you know, uh, they don't they don't actually answer it. So it is left ambiguous, but it does seem, you know, that the, that basic idea, though, of that um, even in translating a word, the cultural connotations remain um, different and have to be understood in their particular and can't be generalized, I think still... Um, stands as an interesting point of the film and one that uh you know might (laughs) might seem um you know clear for a lot of uh anthropologists but i think that it's an interesting way of presenting it to a broader public of folks who uh you know might not necessarily have been exposed to linguistics or anthropology or have been exposed in a (laughs) in in such a uh, high science fiction way. So I definitely, uh, definitely appreciate that for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely just add to, to what you mentioned, Dylan. Um, you know, <laughs> the cow thing. And of course, Sherry, the quote you mentioned, that's, I think, literally at the start of the film, uh, you know, after, you know, you see, uh, you know, I think Dr. Banks or Amy Adams character uh, kind of get called out, uh, you know, the v- most traumatic in the most traumatic way. I think it would be every uh, social scientist's dream where a helicopter lands on your front porch and you just, ho- and you know, you know, um, somebody comes in and says, uh, hey, you have 20 minutes to pack your bags. Uh, no, 10 minutes. And then you pack your bags and you get on a plane, you head out to a field site Um I, I, I will also bring up a, a few small things that I've noticed uh, earlier on the film. Uh, you know, the competitive nature that uh, Amy Adams' character plays, uh, specifically, right, the, she's, you know, she's known as the best linguist, the best translator in the world, uh, you know, because she helped the U.S., uh, you know, with a, uh, I think it was a Farsi translation. Uh, 
you know, for 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 military. And so, you know, likewise the uh, you know, her confidential uh, you know, you know, her ex- access to confidential information. Wow, I mean, is that a, a dream as well? Um, but you know, I think there's a few things that I I noticed too uh, with with regards to maybe we could talk a little bit more about the language, um, you know, the circular sense of it. Uh, at least I noticed what it seems as if it's the language is a map, like a time travel map. So if, however you can read it is however you can see the future or the past. Um, you know, I, I've I read up on some you know theories to try to explain the film better, and I think the book as well explain may explain too. But it's kind of a sense that you're able to have visions of the future because you've read this language. Uh, so it's a, because of certain sections of the language, right? I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Here, but uh, it, it's that sort of sense where if you could read a segment that says, "Okay, technology, uh, weapons, uh, you know, or something," right? Uh, it just it tells you hints at what the future may tell, um, and likewise, you know, whatever happens in the future, right? I think you you know we're not i'm not a theoretical physicist but uh but you know the the fact that you know you can you know whatever happens in the future you if you see it it should happen again in the past and you can you know it's just circular motion and all that um but there's also i think um a, a big part where i think there's a scene where jeremy rayner uh, i think that the theoretical physicist that he plays uh mentions the superior wharf theory um, and I think definitely we'll have some notes on that, but I think he explained it very abruptly and very simply as uh, a language affects the way you interact with culture, which I think it's pretty good, simple definition for film. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, it also is a potential theory that he's trying to bring up, I think, uh, re- with regards to how this language is being read and how this language affects humans. Uh, potentially maybe the, the aliens are coming to show us that or show off that the superior war theory was correct all along. You know, maybe that's what it was all about, uh, and that you know actually superior the superior war theory is actually a time travel mechanism for the future, uh, something like that. But uh, I, you know, I, maybe I'm simplifying a lot of this, but at least to me that film, and then likewise, I think t- we could talk a little bit about it. But uh, how the heptapods provided this information. It was through uh, an ink form, I believe, right? So they would spray it and it would come out in this ink um, and then it would, you know, organically kind of form form itself. Uh, and I, I think that's why they call themselves the, the heptapods, right? Uh, kind of this half octopus, half, um, you know, alien species that just, you know, put their hand out and spilled the, the, the ink, Um and uh, could could form form that language uh, that they they created, um, yeah. I, and then of course, I think there's towards the end of the, the film, you'll see the big map with all where they right before the aliens leave, they put out their whole language. And so um, I love when Amy Adams is like, you know, they're you know China's about to attack, and Amy Adams is sitting in the the, the command center and is like, this is going to take like years, decades to research and understand, and yet. I don't know. Somehow she figures it all out, or Jeremy Rayner figures it all out in the matter of twenty minutes and saves the world. So, very interesting, I think, and uh, a great story to tell. <laughs> well, it's it's not just a strong, but it's like a hyper strong Sapir Whorf, right? Because it's Sapir Whorf is like the the hypothesis that um you know the language that you speak shapes your worldview, right? 
and um you know so it's distinguished by like these strong and weak and you know how much how much language really shapes your worldview has kind of been um something that's been often researched and debated in uh linguistics and linguistic anthropology and stuff uh but you know i mean i don't I don't think anybody would agree today that really the, the it, it, language could have such a powerful effect. So it's certainly like a hyper strong, the fiction part of the science fiction with the idea that learning a new language frees you from the shackles of time itself. That's, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's certainly um, an interesting presentation idea, but yeah, the heptopod thing, right. Is cause you know, they got the, the seven legs, but they're definitely, they are modeled after in a way, um, almost like cephalopods with the body right and then they just on these seven spider legs that in a way they almost look like a hand with seven fingers right is what they really that's what i thought that they looked like um crawling across uh <laughs> crawling through their spaceship crawling across the screen um but yeah but then at the tip of each of those legs right they have it splits open like a uh, octopus tentacles in a way and then it um they emit the ink that they can then shape into their timeless no beginning no end magic language that uh opens your mind to the future uh so yeah you know it's uh <laughs> I, again i would say it's probably it's not just strong but hyper strong sapir wharf but uh it's certainly a very interesting presentation of that particular hypothesis i think even if it uh you know it leans a little more that portion leans a little more into the fiction element of the science fiction but you know it's the point of having a fun movie right i'm gonna say a little bit about the safer wharf because i think that um one of the things that is still um debated is on that aspect of linguistic relativity and does it actually change your worldview does it you know um shape does it make things different where of course this is a fiction science fiction film um where we can do anything you know and um oh my gosh there's so many things um really there's i i just need a lot more time to be able to kind of patch and piece together because um, a filmmaker, a screenwriter had once said that, you know, putting together a film like this is like this mosaic of time. You're telling little bits of the story, you know, and because of the deliberate um, kind of this, this mix mash of order sequencing, which is meant to sort of disorient you, which is going to be something you experience when you go into this other, you know, other world. So we're going into their pods where we're engaging with them. And um, Kevin, you had mentioned these you know the and and the the ink blot you know which um um the uh director denis had mentioned you know well it could have it may have been inspired by coffee stains on the napkin you know and like these i when i first saw them in the film i thought wow that is like the the zen circle where you know the zen circle is meant to represent there's no beginning and no end and things are imperfect you know, when you see a circle that's broken, it has this, you know, um, it's not meant to indicate a beginning and an end or an alpha and omega. This is all just circular, you know, it's, it's this ongoing cycle um, and um, how we are still in our present day studying parietal art in archeology span and, you know, the cave art and the formations, these signs and symbols and what are the meaning? What was their purpose? Why were they left by, by um, 
you know, uh, all of these unusual circumstances. You have some that's found in caves where there's very little oxygen, you know, meaning that how did they get light in here? How did they get, you know, um, these images onto the walls of the cave or in these incredibly large uh, formations, you know? Um, so I think that the parietal art and um, places like these obscure, like why this place in Montana, like it'll just pop up out of nowhere, you know? Um, I think there was a lot of, um, indications but I think the film was really uh, designed in explaining sort of the processes and I think that well I would hope that we'll agree I think the golden moment is when Dr. Banks um, kind of explains why it's important why we're going so slow in talking about like we need to teach these basic components in the beginning she says let's dazzle them with the basics you know we have to understand um, um, what the word means uh, in both of our languages. And also in mentioning this is their alien language, we don't know if this was a language that they designed only to speak to humans, um, or if this is a language that they use with one another, because we don't really see any signs that Abbott and Costello, the nicknames for these heptopods, um, were having interactions with one another or with their other aliens. For a moment, I thought maybe this is just sort of this like um, one enormous Skype session with this, that they're not actually in the pods themselves, but then after the explosion, when one of them, I can't recall which one, um, dies. So there's this idea of death. They understand death um, when one of them dies and says, no, you know, he's not there. So we understand that whatever happened in that pod affected the alien. So that's the only time we know that the aliens were actually there. But, you know, they have the, the intelligence to be able to travel, you know, and even just have these pods um, and reverse gravity. That was fascinating too, the way they had to change gravity to accommodate us humans. Um, we're just assuming they're from a different time. We're assuming that they're from a different, you know, super far out of the way um, galaxy somewhere. And um, we're assuming that their language is their language, not what they uh, just designed specifically for humans. Um, incidentally, I wanna add a little bit of a, a side piece uh, from Dr. Shopes when this had come up. I think there was, a, um, we had also talked in the dig of accuracy of the film um, and to the actual historical context. And uh, Dr. Schultz had mentioned that, you know, the to be able to pick apart the one inaccuracy that was present to someone who is a very, very talented, very highly skilled linguistic anthropologist and to say, linguistic anthropologists do not get paid enough money to be able to afford the kind of home that Dr. Banks had. So um, I think to, to have that highlighted as the one anomaly, I think it speaks about the accuracy as far as the experience of a linguistic anthropologist going into the field um, and having to kind of wipe your own slate clean and think of all of the possibilities of how we have the potential to misinterpret when in the final hour, the, you know, I think it was mentioned, the fate of humanity, the fate of humanity depends on whatever she said to um, uh, the leader of China. I think, uh, gosh, his name escapes me right now. Um, but 
this, this whatever was recited on his wife's deathbed was going to be the key to saving us from this major uh, violent war. Well, it's one of the interesting things that, again, the film leaves open, right, is the idea that um, the war was prevented, right? What, what, what we do know for certain was that what was prevented was the humans from attacking the heptapods, right? But we never actually have any indication that the heptapods would have ever done anything about it, right? Um, you know? <laughs> and so, again, right, the, it, the sort of that questioning of that framing of um, the inevitability, not even necessarily of conflict with aliens, but just of conflict in general, right? And the, you know, how um, uh, all the these U.S., the CIA guy and the military guys are very concerned with, well, if other countries attack, then they'll probably retaliate against everybody, right? Which seems, again, like an interesting assumption, especially as they have these fears that they're being pitted against each other. So there's the simultaneous assumption that aliens are trying to exploit um, the lack of unity amongst humans while also would ignore that lack of unity if they were attacked. And so a lot of it is is showing that there's just a fundamental amount of fear and distrust in trying to um, achieve first contact or trying to open uh, communications with uh, you know, an unknown group, which I find uh, interesting. And also, uh, yeah, I don't know, unfortunately, that that would be one of the inaccuracies of the film. I think that the whole process would probably be um, full of suspicion and mistrust. But, you know, maybe, maybe that it wouldn't be necessarily wholly uncalled for. But yeah, I, <laughs> the, the house thing is funny, because I do remember thinking about that. Um, uh it's certainly this time that I watched it through of like that is a really nice house she did not <laughs> she must have had a really good side gig or won the lottery or something because like that is that house is a little disproportionate um you know to even for a world acclaimed scientist for what she's doing she's not making um you know that much money but uh yeah you know <laughs> I mean Again, though, that's part of the artistic license thing of just, you know, we wanted to have a nice set design for a nice house to show her in and all that. And to make the, when the helicopter comes and picks her up, all the more dramatic and all the scenes of her, them raising the kid all the more dramatic. So, you know, that's as it is. But uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm curious uh, as we are approaching the end of the show, you know, of any final thoughts that either of you guys might have about the, uh, about the movie you know i know it might be a little hard to try and come up with a short set of final thoughts but uh you know just curious if there's anything else y'all want to touch on briefly about this uh complex and layered movie i'll just make a quick critique uh another critique actually um there's a scene earlier on in the movie where i think they're at, on on campus at, i think university of washington is where it's set and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the students like, all get phone calls and, and then they all leave. Uh, and then dramatically what happens next is they're all asked to leave uh, campus. I, I'm just saying UAF has snowstorms. We have, you know, really tough situations here on campus and yet we still go to class. 
so I don't know what's happening down there. Maybe that's the truth or reality. No, no, not to shout out to anyone, but maybe the film is over exaggerating that part. So, but uh, anyways, that was just one small critique that I thought is, uh, wow, okay, I guess uh, an alien comes and we all have to go home. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would take the day off, man. I don't you know? know about you, but if aliens show up, I'm skipping class that day. Absolutely. <laughs> but to that, I'll say quickly, um, I did find it interesting that like, you know, at the beginning, everybody's crowded around like the television and stuff, but she just like ignores it and walks by. And I was thinking like, especially today, but I would argue even like no American in general in the post 9-11 age, especially someone who would have been old enough to remember it, right? As Amy Adams character would have been would see everybody crowded around a television and everybody watching the news and just been like, yeah, I don't care like that. I don't, I don't know that that really would have happened. I think you would have had to be someone who really just was completely disconnected from the world in general to do that. But uh, just my small nitpick to build off your small nitpick, Kevin, (laughs) what about you, Sherry? Do you have uh, any final points that you'd like to bring up? Not final ones. Um, continuing. This is definitely a continuation. I want to keep exploring these. Um, you know, I, I learned a, a new word or revisited a word that I may have uh, needed to really cement. But um, the difference between we mentioned the sounds and the uh, symbols and like um, the 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 sounds that were made and what we had learned about like the uh, specialization of of sounds and you know other non-human animals um, and humans as well but like this dog panting I think was a a very strong example that Dr. Shopes had uh, brought in you know this is involuntary how do we know that their sounds were actually voluntary and how do we know that what they were bringing you know was the gift I think that um when I did kind of go down the, the Levi Strauss, you know, rabbit hole and um, the gift, um, one quote was, uh, gifts make slaves. And so our accepting, you know, ones who were kind of all on board and were accepting, you know, this communication and um, um, willing to invest our, our resources and our, our, uh, our time and um, how, um this gift is going to become this responsibility that now we know um and on top of that going back to the relationship so the other major part of the film with the you know a parent who knows that they're not going to be able to see their child to full adulthood like to have this child you know regardless is this is this um presented as premonitions or is it also a part of like act of like willful intent here, you know, with the um, back to the cattle, our focus on this acquisition and, you know, resources and power, this scramble, this world, you know, how we're fighting against ourselves um, when we could all just be working together. And um, I, I think that all of this is like, you know, really just indicates the value and how important accurate communication becomes so how uh, back to the beginning of the film where she explains, you know, or the preface explains the fundamental, um, the foundation of humanity is is set on language, our ability to communicate with each other, to 
pass on information. And again, this is, you know, so much of the components of what anthropologists study is that, you know, why do we do the things that we do? And why do we um, choose the people that we choose to mate with? And why do we, you know, uh, interact with the groups and cultures that we interact with? So all of these things come down to um, how much can be discovered in uncovering, you know, these graphemes or these symbols that we use and how one small symbol can include such complicated meaning. Um, yeah, there's there's no final thoughts. I could go on and on about all of this. Uh, and I really want to just rewatch it again because I know there's so much more. Um, so I'm I'm super, super grateful that this film has come up. I did not see it when it first came out, but I'm gonna be seeing it a couple more times for sure. It's it's a really good one, I think. I think that, uh, you know, we all have uh, assorted thoughts on it, but I think that we can all agree that it's a uh, really good one. And if any of the listeners uh, haven't gotten the opportunity to see it, you know, definitely check it out. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's good in a variety of ways. I think uh, it's both a good science fiction film, but again, the reason that we're talking about it is I think it is also pretty good portrayal of the struggles of first contact and of um, trying to understand an alien culture in an alien language, right? And so, you know, it's, there's a couple different ways to watch it and, and a multitude of things uh, to get out of it, as I uh, think that we have uh, managed to convey, uh, you know, in our short time, really, in, in talking about it, because, uh, yeah, as Sherry has, has said, really, there's a lot more you could talk about with this particular film but uh yeah you know it's it's a good one it's a good one I think that's that's my uh, kind of closing remark on that it's just a good film an aesthetically pleasing uh sci-fi alien linguistic anthropological film uh that sounds that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds pretty. And we'll, this conversation, I think, can be continued in many, many ways, and hopefully in many other forms. Uh, maybe through ink blots uh, on the wall. That's maybe our next speaking of anthropology show. You'll just hear clicking sounds and ink being splattered on the wall. Um, you're listening to no. KSUA Radio, ninety-one point five FM Fairbanks. Uh, we have two quick PSAs uh, here. Uh, just some upcoming events that you could potentially be interested in joining. Uh, this one's coming from Junior Achievement. Uh, the, so they are asking for you, if you're interested, to join Junior Achievement for Alaska's Mark Eleison Three Club Scramble Golf Tournament on Tuesday, June 22nd. Uh, for more information on that, uh, go to alaska.ja.org. For more information, it's a unique tournament that will test uh, your golfing skills at the Moose Run Creek course in Anchorage. It's a local uh, businesses will be supporting and all the funds will go to Junior Achievement. More information can once again be found at alaska.ja.org or uh, on their Facebook page and calling at 907-344-0101. Dylan, there's another PSA, I believe, uh, for a yes. local farming activity, I believe. That's uh, <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah, this one uh, comes from Calypso Farm in the Ecology Center. So uh, schedule your spring and summer field trips at Calypso Farm. Calypso's hands-on field trips provide fun educational experiences with farming, forest ecology, and folk arts, perfect for all ages. 
field trip themes include life on the farm, sheep and wool, insect exploration, and natural dyeing. This is the perfect year for small groups like families, homeschool pods, community groups, and childcare facilities to explore the farm and experience small individualized field trips. Uh, now scheduling field trips for May through August. Visit ClipsoFarm.org or call 907-451-0691. That's either ClipsoFarm.org or 907-451-0691 for Calypso Farm field trips. Perfect. Um, yeah, I just want to thank you again, Sherry, for coming on the show uh, and, and chatting a little, a little bit with us today about Arrival, the film. Uh, it's always fun to chat with an outside perspective. I think Dylan and I have lots of interesting ideas, but then, whoa, a new idea comes along and, uh, and a new voice comes along and brings us uh, even more uh, thought, thinking of what anthropology is and can be in our everyday lives. Uh, thank you so much, Sherry, again, for coming on. No, thank you for having me. And I think this, again, is the, um, you know, the repeat of the pattern of the message of it takes all of us bringing all of our different perspectives and all of our different pieces together to have a more fuller, richer uh, understanding. So, yeah, thank you. And I would love to be able to keep going on and on about this film, but uh, I would just encourage everyone to watch it and um, maybe we'll have like a big conference and have everyone come together and, and talk about the different, um, just, just so many, I would love to hear more perspectives and you know, yours are always great, but uh, again, it's just, um, yeah, we, we need to really um, get over that disconnect. So let me know. The, the more the merrier, right? Uh, yeah, no, and I, I think that that's, uh, just, it's a, good testament i think not just the power of this film but science fiction in general i think it's a good um it's a good example of the power of of science fiction as a genre to present and deal with these sorts of ideas so yeah uh this has been uh speaking of anthropology here on ksua 91.5 fm fairbanks for the 14th of may uh 2021 uh we have archived versions of the show up on speakingofanthro.wixsite.com slash speakingofanthro for folks who want to go back and listen to previous episodes. And we will be back with another episode uh, next Friday, the 21st of May from 11 to noon Alaska time. 